It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. So you want to get into the daily fantasy thing, get those competitive juices flowing, and maybe even win some cash. But Coach Nick, you say, there are too many gosh darn teams and players and stats and lineups. Well, don't worry. All is well because there's a new app for that. It's called No Halftime, and you can pick one player or one team and challenge others. Pit LeBron James versus Steph Curry, or James Harden versus Russell Westbrook, or Sasha Vujicic versus Nikola Vucevic. It takes seconds to set up, and it can be public or private. No Halftime is not only for the NBA, but tons of other sports. It's fun, it's addicting, and you'll get a $20 bonus by entering promo code COACH at sign-up. Leave the break in the middle of the game to us coaches. For you, there's no halftime. How hard is it to hand out punishments in the NBA? What was college recruiting like in the 90s? Have the rules done more to shape the style of play than any other innovation? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown. I am pleased to bring on Stu Jackson on the show, who is a Senior Associate Commissioner of the Big East and also the NBA TV Analyst. And also a uh, my former boss at the University of Wisconsin. So, uh, Coach, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> well, happy to do it. It's a turn of events. <laughs> uh, it is. It is. I mean, if we could go back that far, uh, people might not remember. Uh, you, you ran the program at, at Wisconsin when I was a basketball manager. And um, I thought we could talk a little bit about that, if that's okay. Yeah, no, that'd be great. So, you came in. Wisconsin had been, you know, sort of a doormat for a while. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the energy came into the room when you got there. And I thought what I was curious about was, you know, what was recruiting like back then? Because I feel like now it's a lot different with at college level. And, it, you know, you were very good at that. So what, what were you doing then that, that might be so much different from now? Well, back then, um, for one thing, recruiting at Wisconsin had its own share of uh, obstacles, um, being that, you know, historically they had been a football school and the basketball program um, hadn't been one that uh, attained national notoriety. So that presented a unique challenge for us in recruiting just at the school. But uh, when we got there, what we tried to do is establish uh, Wisconsin also is a basketball brand in addition to being a football brand and uh, tried to go out there and beat the bushes and find players. I mean, recruiting at that time uh, was a little bit different than it is in today's world in that uh, it was more recruiting than was traditional. I mean, generally you dealt with the, you know, the player himself, um, his family, um, and then uh, his high school coach. Uh, today, that's uh, changed a bit, and while you deal with all of those people, there 
the the you know the circle around many of the players today has expanded uh, in terms of who schools need to appeal to in an effort to sign uh, players. Well, what a lot of what I learned from you as a coach, I would imagine, was pretty much what uh, Coach Rick Pitino taught as well. So would you say that, you know, your style and even the X's and O's were a reasonable facsimile of what he did when you were his assistant? Yeah, well, coming in and starting a new program, I had uh, had that experience with Rick Pitino at Providence uh, University. And, you know, coming into Wisconsin, there were a few things that uh, – uh, personally, I had going for myself uh, just on a branding level. One is I had been in the NBA, uh, not only as a uh, coach, but also as a league executive. And secondly, uh, we wanted to bring to Wisconsin a style of play that was both exciting for the fans to, to watch, but uh, as importantly, an exciting brand of basketball that was appealing uh, to young recruits or high school players, um, focused in on, you know, full court pressing, uh, very up-temple, you know, offensively, and a program that was focused on individual skill development for those players who had the necessary skills and wanted to eventually reach the NBA. So that, was, in big part, was the appeal um, that, that we brought, uh, you know, to Wisconsin, and uh, fortunately, you know, we had some success. Did you know, like when I watched Michael Finley in practice, uh, we, we saw him do things that were like, you know, Michael Jordan-esque, I suppose is the word. Did you have a feeling that he was going to be, and, and part of my problem I have with the NBA today is people have forgotten how good Michael Finley was in the NBA. And so did you have an inkling when you were coaching him that he would be as good as he ended up being? Well, in, in, in all uh, truthfulness, um, as I was evaluating uh, accepting the position as the head coach at Wisconsin, uh, Michael Finley and Tracy Webster, uh, who was our point guard that my first year, were the primary reasons that uh, you know gave um, me some hope that we could be successful. Um, prior to accepting the position, I had a chance to uh, watch uh, videotape. Uh, you know, it was actually videotape back then uh, on <laughs> Michael's games as a freshman. And uh, at the end of it, I concluded that I thought he was a player that had great potential. And more importantly, doing a little bit of background check on Michael Finley, I thought he was a player that would be a great player to build around from a leadership standpoint. And, uh, boy, can I tell you, I wasn't disappointed. And, you know, so to say that I was surprised, I wasn't. I really felt that he had a chance to be – a great player, uh, and I thought he had a chance to be a pro, quite frankly, and uh, he not only became a pro, but he became a very, very good one. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. You know, one thing I talk about a lot when, um, you know, in coaching circles is we talk about practice habits and guys who can perform in practice and who don't. And there was a player on that team. Uh, well, let's give a shout out to, uh, to Andy Kilbride, who was, you know, a guard on that team. 
And my impression, if you had just dropped into a, a, a random practice during that year, you would have probably thought that he was the best player on the team. I mean, my memory was he, he was a lead guard. He ran the offense. He would get the, get steals all over the place. He'd knock down threes off the dribble, on the catch, whatever you wanted. Um, and he really couldn't do that in games. And so I was wondering if you if we ever had a, if you ever had a notion of, like, what didn't translate over from practice to games? Well, you know, certainly uh, for many players um, – you know, transitioning from what they do in practice to the game, uh, there's always going to be some slippage. And the degree of slippage or, you know, not meeting that mark is at different levels for different players. All that being said, I mean, Andy was a very critical uh, piece. Um, you know, those first uh, two, I mean, those two years at Wisconsin, in terms of being an example of a player that, you uh, you know, typified what we wanted a Wisconsin basketball player to be. Uh, he was extremely hardworking. He was passionate about the game. Um, you know, he, this, the style of play fit his style of play in terms of being up-tempo, you know, being able to drive the basketball, being able to, to, to you know, shoot the three. So he, he really embodied a lot of what we were about. Uh, but when all that was said and done, he was a very, very good defensive player. And I felt comfortable, you know, with him out there on the floor. Uh, you know, just a, you know, a player that I'm really uh, indebted to. Okay. And so do you think that there is something like maybe going forward? Because I know a lot of coaches, you know, tune into this and listen. And I'm wondering if there are, you know, things that you can, you know, use in, from your past experience that, we, that would help. Because I'm sure a lot of coaches have players that, for whatever reason, they couldn't quite make it work on the, on the floor during the games. I'm wondering, was there ever a, a notion of, oh, like this is the issue and we could have, we can fix that or that could be, you know, looking back on it now, we could figure out a better way? Well, it's, it's any coach's challenge to try and get players to, you know, to fi figure out what uh, button that you need to push to get them to play at their maximum level. And sometimes you're successful and sometimes uh, you're not. But one thing you always do as a coach is you keep trying. Uh, to be innovative and find different ways. But there's no one answer for any one player. I mean, what you may do for one player in terms of, uh, you know, it may simply be that he just needs more repetition of skill to make him perform better. For another player, it may take more constant communication on a daily basis to help him uh, perform better or to make that transition from practice, uh, you know, to games. But, as a coach, you just try to, you know, try to find more and different ways on how to motivate players to reach their potential. Well, one of my uh, vivid memories was uh, during that year, maybe the the second year, uh, I, it was probably Purdue, and I remember Andy, uh, he got into a fight. Uh, he was very, uh, you know, very fiery. And I remember, uh, you know, Michael Finley came out and, you know, held somebody back, like, you know, peacekeeping. But, of course – there are rules about that. And uh, can you take us back to that? Because I, I don't remember you yelling much at all ever in those two years, but I, I do have a vivid memory of you on the phone after that game, because I believe the next game we were playing was Michigan. And uh, do you remember that time? <laughs> yeah, I do very much. So, uh, you know, the Purdue game at home um, was one of the most crushing defeats that I ever experienced as a coach. Um, at the time, as you may remember, Purdue was a uh, nationally ranked team. I think they were near 
or, or perhaps on the top of the Big Ten uh, conference at the time. And we were just, a, you know, an upstart team. And, you know, we had them at home and we were playing extremely, extremely well. Uh, and I want to say late into the game had a double-digit uh, lead um, on the way to winning that game, And except there was one problem, is that Purdue had this guy by the name of Glenn Robinson who ultimately <laughs> went on to be, you know, uh, I think the first or second pick in the NBA draft. And, you know, we had done a very good job defensively holding him in check for most of that game. When I say holding him in check, I think he was in the low double figures. And then all of a sudden he just, you know, exploded with a, a barrage of, uh, you know, scoring that ultimately tied the game. We went into overtime and uh, and, and unfortunately lost. But, um, yeah, that was, uh, boy, I, I look back on that game, like, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, it was filled with emotion. You know, players were – you know, uh, emotionally at a fever pitch. And, you know, we had to play that way at Wisconsin uh, because we weren't the most talented, uh, certainly not as talented as the Purdue team. And to give ourselves any chance of winning, you know, we had to have that emotion, emotional edge. And, yes, sometimes it might have gone a little bit over the top. And so, as I recall, we were able to avoid having Finley uh, suspended for the next game. Is that is that my memory correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. You know, we, you know, we made an appeal and, um, you know, fortunately the conference agreed that, uh, you know, there weren't going to be an extent, any extensive penalties. And uh, I think we were playing Michigan on the road, maybe that next game. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, but, you know, we were lucky. The, 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 I'll just say that the, we were very lucky. <laughs> Well, there's no question that your impassioned pleas got through. I heard them through a couple of different closed office doors. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which is an interesting uh, uh, segue here because you ended up becoming uh, sort of the equivalent at the NBA level of the person who, you know, was going to hand out uh, punishments. Um, and I thought that that was an interesting uh, comparison here because, you know, there were a lot of sort of major decisions that you ended up having to make that affected a lot of the NBA. I was, I was wondering if we could, you know, talk a couple about a couple of those things. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, it is ironic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the one. The one thing I think is interesting is that the, the style of play now uh, resembles what the NBA and your office, uh, I think, wanted to create as far as what the rules were changed to increase the way we play, the way the defense plays. So do you feel as responsible as like guys like, you know, maybe Mike D'Antoni and those guys for creating what the NBA style is today through the rules? Well, well, yeah, we, you know, we made some key changes uh, back in uh, 2001 where uh, the NBA's uh, competition committee made a recommendation to the owners that there'd be some fairly drastic rule changes uh, that included getting rid of uh, what the NBA used to have, which, which were some uh, illegal defensive guidelines that really dictated where players defensively were supposed to stand on the floor to get rid of that. Um, and we also came up with this concept of the defensive three seconds uh, where a player couldn't just stand in the lane and, you know, uh, the shot blockers and block, um, you know, shots at will or uh, cut off passing lanes was another key. And then we, you know, redefined uh, what the concept of incidental contact was on the perimeter. 
um, not allowing players to arm bar or hand check or hold players on the perimeter. And what it uh, essentially did, along with, you know, uh, reducing the backcourt violation from 10 seconds to 8 seconds, it helped speed up the game uh, in the full court. And more importantly, on the half court, it created more player movement and ball movement. And you began to see over time this evolution of teams who, you know, started to use more five-man passing schemes. Um, They started to push the basketball a little bit quicker, so the number of possessions uh, and the pace of the game began to increase. Um, Then you had the advent of analytics where people started to realize that taking the three-point shot that was the most efficient shot in basketball. Uh, so all of these changes, I mean, because of these rule changes, you had this evolution of the game in the NBA to, to where it is today. And it's been a great change. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that NBA basketball is as you know, great to watch in this era as it has been in any era of the, of the league. Uh, aside from the great players, many of them young players still in the NBA, uh, it's just made for a great product. And but it really goes back to, you know, sitting in you know this special meeting of the rules committee back in 2001 and coming up with this rules package that really changed the face of the game. Well, I think certainly the issues that we had coming out of the 90s and the and even before that and how rough the game was. Uh, you know, ended up creating some other rules. And I thought it was interesting because it has a parallel to what Michael Finley did in in the fight uh, back in Wisconsin was, uh, you know, back in 2007, I'm sure we all can remember when, you know, it was a very contentious series between the Suns and the Spurs. And, you know, we had that same issue where a couple guys strayed a little bit from the bench. Um, And I was kind of curious, like, how agonizing was that decision? Or was it so clear-cut that that is the rule and there is no interpretation and it was an easy decision to make? Well, uh, now it's an interesting question because the decision itself um, was, on the surface, fairly clear-cut in that, you know, a player during an altercation on the floor is not permitted to leave, quote-unquote, the vicinity of his bench. Uh, the tough part became, you know, what is the vicinity of the bench? And, but unfortunately for, you know, uh, the Phoenix Suns, um, you know, there were some players that extended well beyond what I'll call the vicinity of bench or, you know, or past the bench area when the altercation on the floor between Robert Ory and Steve Nash took place. And uh, But the decision to do that was agonizing because, you know, we knew, I knew personally that it – ran the risk of having a profound impact on the outcome of the series and Mm -hmm. that that's tough but if you have a rule uh, you have to enforce it Uh, you have to enforce it uniformly and fairly Um, and unfortunately uh, having a bright line rule about leaving the bench was one that just came at a real untimely point uh, in a play in a major playoff series Uh, so yeah it was difficult time and did you have to deal with that as far as uh, people from the Suns, you know, bombarding your office and screaming and yelling and carrying on? Or was that sort of a thing where they shrugged and said, you know, a rule is a rule? No, no, it was uh, very contentious, uh, very emotional. Uh, because mm-hmm. I remember, everyone understood the potential impact of the suspension of those players. Um, so, 
yeah, it, it was it was tough. It was a very emotional time and a couple sleepless nights, uh, you know, for myself. For sure. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores. Well, I suppose that also connects a little bit to what we saw a couple of years before that in Detroit. Um, but I suspect that that was probably less agonizing as far as as handing out you know punishment because it seemed like it was th- th- there was not a lot of uh, wiggle room here to interpret what was going on. Would that be fair? Yeah, there it was just making sure that with painstakingly uh, detailed that we figured out who was involved. Uh, what acts were committed or actions was committed and then tried to apply the appropriate punishment. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I think that that incident in itself was such a horror, you know, for the league uh, gaining the national prominence that it did, that any penalty that we impose, you could argue may not have been you know, big enough. And do you feel like ultimately what you, I mean, people still talk about it a little bit, but I feel like, do you think that the what you did and the, and the punishments were ended up being worthy and made us, you know, sort of put it in the past enough where we don't even is it not, not even a, a tarnish to the NBA, the NBA logo at this point? Well, yeah, I think that you know certainly the NBA has recovered from that horrible image and branding that that incident, uh, the malice at the palace, uh, you know, gave the NBA. I think they've fully recovered and. You know, most people have now since forgotten that and turned their sights on, you know, where it should be, which is the the great achievements of players and teams on the court. Uh, dare I say the Golden State Warriors. So, uh, you know, when you have a product like you have today in the NBA with teams and players uh, that are in the league today, those types of things tend to get uh, – you know, forgotten. How, how did you guys before the internet like keep track of what, what uh, of these different things? Like, a, I imagine you're getting you know video footage from the the broadcast, but even when you were going to penalize, um, you know, coaches for speaking out against you know the referees after games, how did you end up getting that information before you know 2007 or whatever that time frame is? Lots of Excel sheets and video recording, <laughs> you know, which is something you, you don't necessarily need to do in this digital age. Aha. Uh-huh. So you would get um, people would actually type out whatever all the press conferences from all the different uh, games and just submit them. Yeah, we like we you know, we uh, had a video archive of incidents or, or video clips that we would keep um, over the years and even had them from, you know, the 90s. Um, and then we would record them basically in Excel sheets uh, so that we had an archive of reference uh, when incidents took place to assess what comparables were from previous years. Okay, it's interesting because, you know, when, when I was working with you at, at Wisconsin, we literally had to cut out, uh, there must have been 20 of the, of the major newspapers across the country. We literally be cut out clippings, paste them up, <laughs> and put them in my binder for you. Uh, do you remember, can you believe that's, that's what we used to do? No, no, I, you know, but it was needed at the time. I mean, information is king. And uh, certainly having the ability to stay on top of uh, – media reports with respect to the conference, the games, recruiting, 
um, you know, that kind of thing's important. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately back then it took a lot of manpower, but hopefully you learn from the experience of what the objective was. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, you know, the one thing I wanted to say before we wrap up is that, you know, I think the biggest thing I ever took away from you as a coach and what I tried to integrate was whenever somebody asked you a question, there was never even a pause with, and then you had your answer. And I was wondering if you were aware of that and if that was a conscious thing that you made sure that you had an answer without even a second of uh, hesitation? Well, I, the best thing that, um, you know, I try to tell uh, young people even today is to just make sure that you, you know, read anything about your trade that you can so that you understand what the issues are, uh, what the debate is, and be able to formulate in your mind um, what your view is and be able to communicate and articulate that view. And, you know, I looked at, uh, you know, uh, as a coach, I think your role is is to help young people and to, to guide them and to use your experiences and your knowledge uh, to help them learn and to help them grow. And uh, that's where I was always coming from. Uh, and, and also, I was never really short on an opinion. And uh, so that <laughs> helps as well. Uh, but I'm glad that you learned something. <laughs> I did. I did. And, you know, when you took over the Knicks as the second youngest coach of all time at that at that time, did, did, was there anything that you said, man, I had no idea. I didn't know this before taking over that I learned having then run the the, the, the Knicks franchise for a little while. Did, was there any, anything coming to mind that jumps out at you that you learned? Yeah. I mean, after looking back on the years, just the enormity and scope of what being the head coach of the New York Knicks is all about. I, I had no idea. I was just out there trying to win games day to day and come up with a practice plan and, you know, manage mm -hmm. players the best I could. And sometimes ignorance is bliss. And I think that really applied for me. <laughs> Great. So before we get to the end, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsor for the show, the mobile app, No Halftime. Download it now and get in on individual fantasy matchups. Well, Coach, I can't thank you enough for coming on uh, the show and sharing this, uh, this information with us. It was terrific. And um, looking forward to seeing you doing a lot more uh, analysis on NBA TV. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Coach? I'm in. I'm all in. <laughs> When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. 
This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores. 